0: This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Sarah Rudin, author of Virgil, The Poet's Life. Sarah Rudin is an award-winning classic scholar, a poet, and a widely published writer on religion and culture. Her many translations of Greek and Roman works include Virgil's Aeneid. Her new biography of Virgil, Rome's greatest poet and world's first media celebrity who lived from 70 to 19 BCE under the reign of Augustus, is part of the Ancient Lives series at Yale University Press. This series unfolds the stories of figures from all parts of the ancient world and unveils them in fully human dimensions, complete with foibles and flaws. I'm so excited to talk all things Virgil today, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Um, Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So I don't normally start our podcasts with praise, but I wanted to read this kind review that sets the stage well for our discussion. A detailed biography of Virgil should be impossible, but Sarah Rudin displays such subtlety, such imagination, such love for her subject as to render the impossible possible. And this is from Tom Holland, author of Dominion. I'm wondering if you could tell us more about how you cultivated your love for the classical world and particularly Virgil's poetry in life? Where did this love first begin?
1: Well, I started uh, studying Latin at at 16, and um, I went to a Midwestern public high school, and they had not been teaching Latin for about 20 years. They'd had a Latin teacher, but they'd moved her um, to teaching typing. Uh, so I had to walk to the local university and, and I took Latin classes there. I really loved Latin and Virgil was one of the first authors that I read in, in the original, um, Latin first, one of the first Roman authors. And, um, I was, I was just, bowled over this was a rural area that i had grown up in and i i really loved it in my bones i um would bike all over it and i would just get drunk on the sight of you know fields woods roads houses um and um lines of virgil's eclogues just bowled me over i i um remember one particularly um it goes in in english um I, I begin from Jove, all things are full of Jove. Um, Jove um, cultivates the field, and Jove, it, the Latin goes on to say is is the um, sponsor of of Virgil's Virgil's poetry. and um yeah, the way the way Virgil's Latin stuck with me i i I was so impressed by that and i i as as an undergraduate. At University of Michigan, I wrote an honors thesis, which was mainly a translation of four of of Virgil's eclogues, and um, it won a prize. Um, And that really made me feel that I could could have a career in translating. That was my major interest in in graduate school and, and afterwards. And I take, I think, a, a different approach to translating than other people do, and maybe a different approach to scholarship altogether. I, I try to get so close to an author that um, so close to an author um, in his, you know, historical reality, in his literary sensibility, that. Um, I get uh, vertigo and you know want to throw up. <laughs> vertigo, sorry that I that I get vertigo and and want to throw up. And the the usual approach to translating is to create a self consciously new version of the literary work. And I just met uh, by Zoom. I just met. Um, Maria Devana Headley, who has produced a, a wonderful, wonderful audiobook, which is a new version of the Aeneid. It's a musical. And it's really quite hilarious and satirical and very modern in its sensibility. So I loved that. And a lot of people do that. They they go in a new, they take the original literary work and they go in a new in a new direction I guess I started out like that but um gradually I began to concentrate more and more on doing the research um and just getting as close as possible you know intellectually emotionally to to the author and but I I do this differently, I think than than most academic researchers now i I have tremendous respect for academic research. I couldn't do anything without it. I'm completely dependent on commentaries, particularly um, that's the com- commentary is um, a series of of notes on an original Greek or Latin text, and it takes you in great great detail through the uh, linguistic and um, historical dimensions of of this work, so that word word by word, you know, everything that is known about it is presented. So yes, I'm dependent on on that, but I um, have you know one long term uneasiness about the way academic research is is conducted in in the modern world and i'll i'll give you just just here here's a metaphor for it i i had my dog out in the front yard uh, the other day and he was sniffing at the long grass under the rose bushes uh sniffing with very great interest um snuffle 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 and there was a a teenage rabbit about six inches from my dog's nose and I found this out when the rabbit broke cover and made a run for for the bushes for other bushes and the dog kind of glanced at the rabbit he was uh, um he was sort of aware but then he was he was more enthralled in smell of the rabbit and he continued to snuffle 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 and then you know he was after a little while he was kind of looking over where the rabbit had gone yeah there had been a rabbit but that seems to be um how many people conduct academic research they lose track of the they, they get um so caught up in the data about the thing that they lose track of the actual living moving breathing thing in which you would think they would have the you know much greater natural interest than in the data about the thing
0: that's a wonderful transition to my next question i am struck both by your metaphor of um, the way in which we conduct academic research, but also in your desire to get so close to the author um, in their own historical reality, and I think many of us know Virgil through his own surviving poetry, but as you know, as well as through fictional mythologies of Virgil's character, such as in Dante's Inferno. And I'm wondering if you, you know, can tell us more about your modern literary biographic approach. Uh, especially in light of all that we don't know about the man himself. Right.
1: Um, Virgil was different from every um, every other ancient author I know. He was uh, very shy. He was withdrawn. He was otherworldly. He... Um, was not very interested in in social life, except um, in a very, you know, specific kind of male philosophical friendship. Um, He would apparently rather just be alone. He was sickly. Um, He was not involved in politics personally. He'd never been in the military. The, The typical ancient author is a quasi-statesman it's somebody like Aeschylus who was also a general and he this person considers his um literary activities as just another offshoot of his public involvement Virgil was not like that Virgil was almost a Proustian figure I would say he he was interested in developing a particular aesthetic um and that took him up entirely that was that was where his attention was was going by preference so virgil spent um on average one day for, on two lines and for the georgics it was um one day on one line these these works of literature came into being very very slowly that's also unusual in the ancient world so the problem of course is that Virgil was the uh, uh client of the most powerful man in the world um Augustus and you know, Augustus wanted to get out of him a well literature of, of a high quality he would have he would have certainly conceded that high quality but he wanted it to be propagandistic. He wanted it mainly to provoke his family, his regime, the end of the civil wars, and the establishment of this new quasi-authoritarian regime. So it was obviously a big conflict there. And a biographers main problem is the the sheer lack of information about about virgil and how this conflict was worked out um, you get really only um, one decent source of of biographical material and that's suetonius's biography which was uh, about more than 100 years after after virgil's death um, this this thing was written and so into this empty space goes all kinds of um, mythologizing unbelievable degree of mythologizing so in late antiquity virgil is uh characterized as a moses type figure he is giving prophetic advice to Augustus as as the ruler, uh, and things just develop onward and onward from from there. By by um, the late Middle Ages, Virgil is a godlike figure. He is the the only appropriate guide to Dante through the underworld. Then you get um, in the modern world a lot of uh further mythologizing Virgil becomes sort of spokesman of empire um right now he's become something of a spokesman for for queer culture and all of I I have just a, a general beef with with all of these interpretations of, of Virgil as a person um I don't I think he was interested in poetry. I think that he was he was interested in putting a very traumatic emotional life into a highly refined gorgeous form. He was interested in making every line perfect and memorable and he was, um, I think this makes him the first the first modern author. So you have to go back and you have to use a lot of speculation as you try to work out um, what his real experience might have been. You do a lot of speculation. I do a lot of um, uh, something that I don't think has ever been done before. In writing about ancient authors, um, maybe something that, that hasn't been done before in in biography at all, which is is just argue by analogy. So when we consider the role that illness played in in Virgil's life, I think it's possible to look at the illness played in the life, lives of modern authors, about whom we know a great deal more. Elizabeth Barrett Browning is a very good example. She very likely created her debilities from the time of early adolescence because she wanted to grab time for herself out of, you know, a culture that didn't allow girls to to control their own time. They were supposed to be going um, on, on visits every day um with their mothers to all of their neighbors they were supposed to be dancing they were supposed to their whole life was a girl of, of browning's class needed to you know be on the marriage market and that took basically all of her time um so she um from the age of 13 she got really dramatically ill and she basically destroyed her own health and that allowed her to to have time for an education so you you couldn't say that I think that this is consciously deliberate, but but authors um, of of many times and places, authors about whom we know a great deal more than we we know about Virgil, have used their health to make time, used poor health to make time for themselves, and I really think Virgil did this. Um, he, Suetonius is is quite emphatic about how terrible his his health was. But it it wasn't terrible in any kind of cogent way, say. Um, He wasn't, he didn't have any major disability. He didn't have any chronic disease that we can recognize. He just had stomach trouble, for example. Um, And that's something that you can, you know, that, that, you can get psychosomatically it can be created by stress um it, it, it's something that you have a, a lot more control over so i'm i'm using um um and i use analogies to to how um other authors have handled patronage which tends to be really uncomfortable and Virgil's patronage of well the patronage of of Virgil by Augustus was certainly very uncomfortable for both of them and i I argue toward the end of the book that this this played a role in in Virgil's death that there was some kind of connivance by Augustine to get rid of this author who was um, just kind of culminatingly uncooperative their their relationship had broken down and Augustus couldn't couldn't allow this to go on anyway all of these things have to be reconstructed because they're only sort of implied by the very few facts that we know
0: right and i and i think you know you have a fascinating uh section in the book on uh your analogy to modern authors and in In some ways, it seemed that, um in reading that section myself, that you know, modern authors can find uh, such resonance and solace in Virgil's life as a poet. um and and, you know, and as you say, you know, Vir- Virgil has represented so many things to, you know, the public throughout time. <laughs> and, as you say, you know, in the middle ages, as, you know, a godlike figure, um to the current, you know, to the current day in in queer culture. And um, you know, to the to your note on um, Augustus and uh, patronage, you know the the book uh, just you know, for our listeners who haven't picked it up yet, you know, it begins with the introduction in which you talk about moving backwards towards the real Virgil, kind of what we just talked about. And then through different themes such as literary literary education, love and art, and patronage. And even though, you know, you had mentioned that Virgil uh, was Augustus's greatest achievement (laughs) in in some ways, um, you also mentioned that Virgil digressed from the popular nationalistic tropes of the day, especially when it came to the Aeneid, which I found a fascinating discussion.
1: Virgil was, was very hard to pin down. As an author, and it was it was really difficult to to make him write about what you wanted him to write about, about about public matters, about ideology, about um, history in a way that it you know um, proved favorable to to Augustus. He he just didn't care about this. So so he will he will slide into things like the story of um, Nisus and Euryalus in the Aeneid. These are two gay lovers. And they get a big chunk of of a book of the the Aeneid. They get hundreds hundreds of lines. Um, Their story is tragic, romantic. It is heartbreaking. What it has to do with the founding of the Roman nation is nothing. Um, It's, I think, purely um, negative as it fits into or doesn't fit into, into the Aeneid. So Virgil is always off on some kind of tangent like this. And at the end of the Georgics, he he, he goes off on the, the super tragedy of Orpheus and Eurydice. And this is a love story in which um, uh, one lover's head is floating down the river, still singing um, in grief because um, the other lover is stuck in the un- underworld through first lover's own fault, and you know Augustus pl- clearly meant the Georgics to be a celebration of Roman uh, or Italian agriculture. Um, you know of peace, of prosperity, and then, and then you get this this topical train wreck at the, at the end as far as augustus is is concerned
0: that you know that is so interesting and um you know i would love to turn to both both of your ending remarks um first maybe we can talk about how sexuality plays a role in in virgil's work and and um you know discussions of sexuality in the ancient world are such points of interest for modern readers and yet they often diverge from our modern categories but nonetheless um As we had kind of talked about previously in in our email correspondence, um, you know, it it does, you know, sexuality does play um, a role in in Virgil's Virgil's poetry. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about that.
1: Right. Well, one thing we seem to know definitely about Virgil is, is that he was gay. And we have a collection of poetry attributed to Virgil. Some of it is definitely not his own, but I think that a good part of it um, consists of his early works. So things that he wrote um, when he was younger than 30, definitely probably younger than 25. So these are apprentice works that he writes. And some of them are absolutely filthy. One is about, well, it's it's a reply to an an enemy of, of of Virgil's, and it says, you know, how dare you go after me and say that I'm less than than a man because I'm too sick to go on military service, and you are. A complete degenerate and here is you um, uh, prostituting yourself at dinner parties and the details are really kind of horrifying this is this is hardcore pornography that we're talking about here so if we believe that this poem is genuine it, it gives um, a picture of Virgil as as a young man Um, finding himself in a very very difficult situation because um, he is not an aggressive he-man and it was the romans considered it fine to be um, gay if you were aggressive and violent that is if you were um, the active partner in homosexual acts and what was really proper, the Romans thought, was for you to be, you know, a genuine rapist and to be preying on on the weak, on slaves, on children, um, and, on on um, you know, anyone who who's vulnerable. And and you know, you could say be preying on women too, but but the aggression was the important thing. And Virgil plainly, you know, had had not got it. It was just not in him to be um um aggressive. So you get i think throughout his his life expressions of um a terrible anger at the way things are and especially the way things are in gender relationships and in sexual sexual relationships this comes out very tragically in the story of 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 dido this is a a lover and Virgil, I I believe, um, um, pulls the the Proustian trick of writing about um, his own um, homosexual experiences as if they were heterosexual experiences. So he he pulls this transformation because it's more socially acceptable it's it's fine better for his much better in the eyes of his audience that that um you know he's writing about heterosexual relationships but but he doesn't actually have this experience and his biography indicates that he was he was offered by by one of his handlers he was offered um the services of a famous courtesan and he, he 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 gave an absolute and very persistent no so he didn't have any heterosexual relationships it, it looks like um but he writes about them very movingly and this he is like proust um he writes very convincingly ab- about them because i think he had the same basic experience and that's an experience Of sex as power. He had the experience that his society only looked, looked at sex only as an expression of power and control and property. Um, And this, this I think, was was a you know um, wound that he carried to his grave, that he could not have a real relationship and you know we hear a lot about ancient tolerance for for homosexuality but one thing that was absolutely not tolerated um not even imaginable was for two gay men to have a household for them to have a um steady and loving and committed relationship that society recognized and to have a to have a home together that um as far as i know absolutely never happened there is a sort of poss- there's a possibility that that happened in greece and in the so-called theban band but i don't really believe it i don't i believe if they tried to institute this that it didn't work um it was um certainly not a not a lasting innovation anyway um i think virgil suffered terribly from erotic loneliness he had boy toys and they were a regular thing among the roman aristocracy you could have a slave freedman um boy um as a sexual outlet um and virgil had virgil had had these boys um living with him but i certainly don't think that he found these relationships satisfying in the in the long term so you have portraits th- throughout virgil throughout his known works you have you have po- portraits of um um emotional and erotic frustration um and terrible tragedy um things you know literally going up in flames and in, in the case of of Dido she commits suicide and and um very quickly her her whole city is is on fire and Aeneas is looking back at this um from the ocean as he heads to he- as he heads to Italy, he's looking back on this with um, terrible, terrible grief. And he and his grief over over the Dido relationship extends to the underworld. It's like Orpheus and Eurydice. Even even death doesn't annihilate the the agony of these relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and um, I think you know. You have um, further discussions of this in the book. And um, in addition to kind of the erotic tragedy in Virgil's poetry,, uh, you discuss in the book his deep love of the land and depictions of Roman landscape kind of um, almost in the in the way that he might have saved his tenderness for familial or, you know, erotic relationships that he that he has this for the land. Um, and I'm wondering if if you can talk a little bit about that. I know you mentioned he was um, born into a modest rural family, but this is really a fascinating aspect of Virgil's work um, throughout his early work, even into the Aeneid.
1: Virgil's descriptions of, of landscape and of, of nature seem to me to be linked to his childhood because of a couple of things. One is um the view from um the ground upward into this um you know endless sky um so this the the viewer is is lowly but the viewer is looking like way up and the um the landscapes are are very dynamic you've got storms you've got fires you've got floods you've got rearrangement of of land the creation you know of 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 a strait by by um you know an enormous flood water coming coming through uh and this is you know to my mind the way that that young children see nature they see it as overwhelming as terrifying in many ways, but is enthralling. Um, he Virgil sort of never gets to the place where the land is under control. Of course, in the Georgics, he's writing about agriculture, and you know the toil you put into the land, trying to get it under control. But even there, the the emphasis is is on disaster, and you get this big um, uh, long passage about the plague. So, you know, once you think you've got the land under control, this, this terrible plague comes and devastates the land and all of your work. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a childish kind of tragic view of the land, but um there's this tenderness and attachment that you really don't see, at least in a lasting way, in in the um human relationships that that Virgil depicts. Uh, you do have the old man of tarentum um, that's a wonderful passage and here here at least is the man who's found um, contentment in market gardening he he uh, the land he doesn't have a very good piece of land so he can't grow grain he can't grow grapes he can't grow these staple staple crops um, but he's he's worked the land ingeniously and he's got bees and he's got um uh, vegetables he's got um um beauty and sustenance a plenty in his his own little little land and of course we've got the story of, of virgil's uh, family farm um the biographer says that it was confiscated um at the well um as the civil wars were winding down um this this land was was confiscated to settle war veterans on mm-hmm. um but through the intervention of Augustus he he was allowed to keep this land this is the story that we sort of see depicted allegorically in in the the eclogues we don't know whether whether this is true i tend i tend to believe it so that virgil you know did get get his land back through this patronage arrangement but the funny thing is that he never lived there and later in the eclogues you have this scene of another scene um in in which it seems to be allegorically conveyed that um no virgil didn't get his land back or or there continued to be conflict and the veteran wasn't who was awarded it was not going to give it up um anyway it could be that virgil just sort of backed out of this conflict because there's no evidence that he ever lived on his family family farm um but the land has um, for him, both of violent, um, you know, qualities of violent up, upheaval, you know, and qualities of qualities of peace, of um, of tenderness, as we were saying, of a, you know, permanent, permanent relationship.
0: i'm I'm really, you know, struck by um both you know Virgil's early childhood um and how his kind of childlike sensibilities are reflected in his poetry um and there's this playfulness, yet also, as you had mentioned, he's so meticulous in in his writing um and kind of seeing the balance there and i'm I'm happy to to end kind of have the, the podcast uh kind of conclude with this discussion of of the love of both erotic love and, and love for the land. Um, but, you know, you the the biography moves moves us through from his early childhood to his tragic death. And, you know, I'm wondering as we conclude the podcast, do you want our listeners to know, you know, anything, you know, about uh the end of of Virgil's life and 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 where does you know that that leave us for for modern for readers of Virgil
1: I don't want to spoil the ending but um the circumstances around Virgil's death are to me very very suspicious um and the big question is why he decided to um demand that that his his work masterpiece the the Aeneid which was um some people say a perfect poem though it's not quite finished it has all the, these half lines um he he wanted he demanded it be burned and um this demand of course was ridiculous because Virgil um at the time was lying on his deathbed and um, he wanted the this manuscript given to him so that he could burn it that's that's how the biography comes across so he he seems to be he's obviously off his head um and he seems to think that they're going to hand him this manuscript and that he's going to be able to um and 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 a flint you know so he's going to be able to light it on fire right on the bed there and um you know kind of kind of watch it burn and um, you know, the implication is that this is the only copy. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, there would have been lots of copies. Um, Virgil had handlers, and Augustus would have made certain that there were plenty of copies and that the latest copy was always sent back to him. He was a control freak. So um we can really depend on on, on the multiple copies. Um, so you know, Virgil makes the the um demand for for the destruction of the manuscript is not only um, not only hysterical it's ridiculous um and it's it's an expression of extreme anger like the extreme anger that we see at the end of of the Aeneid when uh, Aeneas commits a you know military murder um he he kills a suppliant who is no danger to him himself and kills him out of pure revenge uh, so yeah i think the explanation of 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 his his rage right at the end of of his life is that his his relationship with augustus had broken down to such an extent that augustus had connived to get him sick and um basically to kill him and the, the circumstances are very interesting um i lay this out in the in the final chapter and I, I do think that we have a murder mystery at the end of the life mystery that is you know virgil's existence and his work
0: thank you you know so much for, you know, taking the time out of your day to talk with us about this new biography that, you know, as you mentioned, kind of unfolds as both a life mystery and a murder mystery. And, um, you know, it it is such a fascinating snapshot of Virgil's authorship, and I urge our listeners to pick up a copy if they are able. Virgil, the Poet's Life is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.